0: Well, the Fuhrer Ape Hitler had lots and lots of problems, not the least of which was his egotism, uh, his insanity, his violent nature, and his paranoia. But militarily speaking, the one thing that really hurt Hitler and the Germans more than anything else was that Hitler dreamed too big. We would now call those delusions of grandeur is what Hitler and the Third Reich believed in. The elimination of the Jewish race, the annihilation of the Soviet Union, everything had to be done bigger and better than ever had been done before. And so I want to take just a few minutes and give you just a glimpse of One of the things that I enjoy doing when I'm not reading the Bible or playing with kids, uh, I love history and specifically World War II history. And so I've kind of become a little bit of a nut of that. And I want to talk a little bit about dreaming big. And this first picture that we're going to look at is uh, a part of the Luftwaffe. This is the, uh, uh, the, I'm sorry, the uh, air war. for for Germany, and they were fantastic, uh, militarily speaking. But they had to get bigger and bigger, according to Adolf Hitler. And this is one example. This is the Messerschmitt 323. And to get a glimpse of it, you can't really see, but there's tiny specks down at the bottom. Those are people. The length of this aircraft was nearly 100 feet long. The wingspan was 181 feet and the height was 33 feet tall. It was more than three stories tall. It had the ability to carry as many as 130 troops or up to 12 tons of equipment. There are pictures you can see where it opens up in the back and they literally would load tanks into this aircraft and then take off. 12 tons of cargo. What was the problem with the Messerschmitt 323? Can you guess what it was? It's too big and too slow. There is no surviving 323 around because every single one of them got shot down. How about this next picture? This is... Uh, is three different tanks. The first tank is a Panzer. This is what started the Blitzkrieg, this lightning war, and it worked beautifully for the Germans. They would come in at a fast rate, and they would do what was called a pincer move. They would surround their army, cut off communications, cut off supplies, and then they would envelop them from all sides. And it worked amazingly well. But before long... Soviet Union came out with the T-34, so they had to one-up it. And the second tank you can see is the Tiger. This is one of the most famous tanks in the war. And that was used for a long time until a Sherman tank uh, that was called a Fury put a round into a Tiger tank, killing their, their famous ace. And that's when Adolf Hitler said we have to go bigger and he helped design and they created the the tank at the back which is known as the mouse. <laughs> yes, the little tiny creature that we put out traps for. That's what this one was named after. It weighed in at 188 tons. It was 33 feet long, 11 feet high. The armor in the front was almost 9 inches thick of solid metal. And it held 990 gallons of gas, which meant that it had a range of 99 miles. That's right. For some of you who think that your wife's suburban is a gas guzzler, this thing got 10 gallons to the mile. They made two of them, only one of them was ever assembled, and it never made it out because what was the problem? it was too big, it was unrealistic, it would never really work. How about this next picture? This is probably something you haven't heard much of. There were two of them, the Bismarck and the Tirpitz. These were two ginormous ships that were created by Germany. It took over four years to create each one. The Bismarck went out on its maiden voyage, it went up against the Hood which was a British tank, their best uh, tank, ship in the fleet and destroyed it in one shot, and a small biplane holding a one-ton bomb or torpedo hit the Bismarck in the rudder, the one place it was vulnerable it could no longer steer, and the ship that took four years to build was sunk on its maiden voyage. Hitler was furious and afraid. And he took the sister ship, the Tirpitz, and he put it in a Norwegian uh, uh, area and hid it there until at the end of the war it was found. It never went out on the sea and it was sunk because it was just too big. It had guns. It had eight guns that were 15-inch shells around. The shells weighed in at almost 2,000 pounds and could be shot 22 miles away. But it never left the harbor. And the last one I want to look at, another one you're probably not familiar with. This is at Wolf's Lair. Uh, it's where uh, Hitler spent the majority of his time during World War II. Uh, as the war uh, increased and his success decreased, he became more and more paranoid. And he created this bunker, which you can see by the picture. Uh, underneath the yellow sign is an opening which a man is standing. It's over four stories tall. Uh, and I could not find the outer dimensions. Uh, it was in pretty bad shape. The inside of the bunker had one room that was the size of a small bedroom. The rest of that building is solid concrete. It is estimated that you could have built three and a half Empire State buildings with the amount of concrete that was used in that one bunker eight days I'm sorry 12 days after it was completed Hitler left the wolf's lair and went back to Berlin he always thought bigger had to be better its kinda like a Texas problem isn't it we have to get bigger and bigger and bigger if it's bigger it's gonna be better that's not only a problem that that adolf hitler had in world war two it's not only a problem that our fast food chains have when it comes to making burgers or selling us big gulps and super big gulps and double big gulps it even applies in our spiritual lives bigger is not always better as i was preparing for this summer uh, this sermon i was trying to come up uh... with some uh... type Uh, of of title for it and I I decided I wanted to name it dream small and as as I was going through the slides this morning with guy Kessner Cole was up there and he looked at me you're paying attention now you gotta be listening to this because he said what are you talking about why do we need to dream small he says everybody says you have to dream big and I said well you have to stay awake and find out Why we need to dream small? You're awake. I'm glad. One person is awake through this. Hopes of big dreams can suffocate small realities. I'm thankful that Hitler was an egomaniac. And because he was so crazy about building some of those big things, he wasted resources that went to things that were useless and therefore killed fewer people. But in our lives, we sometimes focus on those big things that we really want to have. And in doing so, we miss out on those small opportunities. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, not my favorite, but one of my favorite. I have lots of favorites, and this one is the one that's found in all four Gospels. It's the story of Jesus being anointed by a woman. We're all familiar with this story. She comes in and she's weeping at His feet. And as she wets His feet with her uh, tears, she begins wiping them off with her hair. And this is scandalous at best. Not just the action, but who she is. This is a woman who was sinful, according to the New Testament writers. In fact... Most likely believed that she was a prostitute. And in fact, Simon the Pharisee, who had invited Jesus to his house, was watching what was going on and he thought if Jesus knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't let her near him. And everybody began to argue and bicker and they were indignant. And they began to say, why have you done this? And they rebuked her. And they said, you're wasting all this perfume. It could have been used for something else. They really didn't care about what that money went for. They just wanted to say, that's a waste. You don't need to do that. And Jesus looked at her and said, leave her alone. And I love this line right here. She did what she could. She did what she could. She didn't invite Jesus to her house. She probably didn't have a house big enough to host Him and other guests. She didn't do anything spectacular for Him She didn't bring anything special. She came, she wept at His feet, and she broke open a jar of perfume and anointed Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? Stop trying to get caught up in how big it could have been and think about the little things that you can do. This morning I want to argue that the four Gospels are perfect examples of how little things can mean so much. There's a man by the name of Mark. He followed around another man by the name of Peter. Peter, who liked to talk and share sermons. Mark would listen to the sermons. He would write them down. And ultimately, they would turn into a collection that we now know as the Gospel of Mark. This wasn't any new material. He he didn't write this and make this up as he was going along. He simply dictated what somebody else was saying. And that scroll landed into the hands of other people who wanted to read it. And they began to reproduce that. Matthew was a follower of Jesus who was simply trying to explain to his fellow Jews that Jesus was their Messiah. He was the one that they were waiting for. He was telling a story of someone who had impacted his life. Luke set out to provide an orderly account of a man who was from Nazareth and who was a carpenter and a teacher and in his belief, the Savior of the world. I'm fascinated how we got the book of Luke. In fact, I want to look at that in just a second. As he opens up his book, he writes to somebody by the name of Theophilus. And we don't know if that's somebody's name or simply a title. But he says this, verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. He's writing back possibly to a friend, maybe to a statesman, maybe some kind of of, uh, benefactor, someone uh, who who may have possibly even hired him to say, hey, tell me more about this guy named Jesus. And Luke says, there's been a lot of people who've written about him and I've done a lot of studying and I decided I want to tell you what I know about this man named Jesus and what he did and how he impacted the lives of people around him. Luke never saw Jesus. He went around to people and said, Tell me, what do you know about Jesus? I'm really curious. And Luke, being a doctor, he, was, he really cared about the details. And he would ask these questions. And you'd especially see those come out when there was healings done that involved people who were uh, receiving their sight or hearing back. He wanted to make sure he heard people. Are you sure this was the one who was blind before then? He just wanted to write about someone who had had an impact on his society. He had no idea. John was written by the disciple whom Jesus loved some 60 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. His writing took place while he was basically alone, exiled on an island. The earliest known manuscript that we have is from the 3rd century. He would write this and only a few handful of people would have seen it. And in fact, the original manuscript was not preserved. It would be several hundred years later that people would say, you know what, we need to make sure that we hang on to these and we protect these. In fact, we have no original manuscript from any of the four Gospels. They were simply four different individuals who said, I want to investigate and write about and tell about this man named Jesus. None of the gospel writers had any clue that the writings would be copied, read, and canonized. John chapter 21 and verse 24. These are the last words in the gospel. He says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. Speaking of John, we know that his testimony is true. And he goes on to say this, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. You know, John could have said, you know what, I'm not quite ready to write this gospel, I'm I'm not quite ready to do it, because there's so much more information, and I just don't want to leave anything out, I mean, honestly, couldn't we write more and more volumes, and and I'm going to wait, and if he had said, I'm going to wait till it's big and grand and 18 volumes, then it never would have been done, he says, here's some of the things that I know about Jesus, And as a result, those four different writings that were inspired by the Holy Spirit came to be known as the four Gospels that we have in our Bibles today. The Bible was considered the most sacred possession for millions of families over the course of the next two millennia. People were killed if they were caught translating, printing owning, or even reading a Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did not set out to write the most prolific book ever known to man. They had no idea that it would be translated into over 1,500 languages, that it would be leather-bound or end up in every hotel room in a country that hadn't yet been discovered. They had no idea that their little writings would impact so many people. It is estimated that 10 billion Bibles have been printed over the last few hundred years. And in fact, currently, there are about 100 million Bibles printed every year. That's three. 100,000 in a day. How profound is that? Four individuals just shared what they had seen, what they had witnessed, and what they had heard about Jesus. They testified to who He was and what He had done in their lives and in the lives of others. It wasn't a big, great project that they set out to do. They just said, I want to tell somebody about Jesus. How about you? Don't we want to just tell someone about Jesus we don't need big we don't need grand we just need to find little ways dream small and let God allow the growth this morning I want to close with a challenge to each one of you not a year-long plan not a month-long plan Let's just talk about the next seven days. I want to encourage you to dream small and think about some little things that you can start doing this week. Some of you already do this every day. But for some of you, I want you to think about picking one or two of these things and starting this week to dream and do small. Spend five minutes each day this week, praying for the Spirit to work powerfully in your life, in the life of this church, and all across the world. Five minutes. That is probably about one commercial break. When you're watching Days of Our Lives, hit the mute button in between. After they have the awkward stare off into space, And they go to commercial, hit the mute button, and spend time and ask for God's Spirit to work in your life and to open your eyes. That's one thing you can do. Second, have one spiritual conversation with someone this week. I don't know if that's saying, do you know Jesus? Or talk to them about their faith. Open up, begin one spiritual conversation. It can be with your coworker, your neighbor, your child, your spouse, someone. Just have that conversation. Talk about the Bible. Don't don't talk about politic uh, politics and all those different things. Focus in on spirituality. Maybe you can start off with something like the gospel writers did. Let me tell you about this carpenter named Jesus who changed my life. I get up on Sunday mornings and to go sit and listen to somebody talk about him, and I sing love songs about a guy who completely changed my life. Number three. Read one gospel this week. There's four of them. Lots of options. If you really want to go crazy, go for Luke. It's really long. Matthew's long too. It has more chapters. If you say, you know what, I want to take it easy. I'm going to dream small. Pick Mark. Sixteen chapters and you're done. Just over two chapters a week. You can spend about ten minutes a day and you'll be done with Mark before the week is over. Number four, in dreaming small, schedule a retreat. Now all of you are like, wait, what's he talking about? Schedule a retreat. Like we've got to go get a campsite and we have to have lots of food. and i got to invite families in. We have to go away for a weekend. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Schedule a retreat. Plan 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour where you're going to sit around with no TV, no radio, nothing, either in silence or in prayer or reading the Bible. Say, Friday at, from 4 to 5, this is my time with God, and that's all it's going to be. I'm picking up the phone and I'm taking it off the hook, or I'm turning it off. I'm going to spend time with God. Two more. Listen to, to Christian music only this week. If you're one that listens to the radio a lot like I do, pick The Message or KLTY. I don't know the call letters to 104.5. Listen to one of those. Grab your phonograph and pull out an old Statler Brothers or Oak Ridge Boys or one of those gospel Elvis gospel songs. Put it on the, on the phonograph and listen to records. Find a tape of AB, AVB or acapella or go to Pandora. Find some way in which you can just fill your mind with that. And the last one is, send out five random encouragement notes or texts this week. Dream small. It is amazing what a little text might mean to somebody else. If you just randomly send one out and say, hey, I want you to know that I appreciate you, that I'm praying for you. Let's dream small. We're not setting out to write a book that's going to change the world. We're just going to talk about and believe in and pray to a Savior who's changed our lives. So this morning, dream small and allow those little things that you do impact the world. Four writers said what they knew about Jesus and it's changed the world. This morning, as we sing this song of encouragement, I challenge you to trust and believe in God as we dream small and He works out big in our lives. Let's do it as we stand and sing.